And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I was a political consultant for a long time, and one of the people I met early in my years uh, in politics was Mark McKinnon, who was doing the same kind of work. We worked together on Democratic campaigns. Uh, He was from Texas, switched sides uh, to work for George W. Bush, and was his chief media strategist in the 2000 and 2004 presidential campaigns and now a host of The Circus on Showtime, a great documentary series covering what has become a circus, the 2016 presidential campaign. Sat down with Mark during the convention week in Cleveland uh, to talk about where we are now, but also his experiences over a lifetime in politics. I'm sitting with Mark McKinnon, my old buddy, Uh, And he's got his hat on, his scarf as well. But the hat, we were just talking about it. It's an open road Stetson. Is that what it is? Yeah, this is a, it is a Stetson. straw hat. It's a straw hat. The summer version of the classic felt Stetson. Uh, Is your horse outside or? (laughs) Nearby. There's there's not a picture of me growing up I don't have a hat on. I've just always loved hats. And it started with my dad, who was a who did some ranching early on in his career, and but wait a second, this is what I'm getting at. You grew up in Colorado, yeah. did you not? Yeah, I, that's where in, I'm in from. Like, where in Colorado? Uh, born in Boulder, and then uh, grew up in Denver and Summit County. So, did a lot of folks uh, wear open road well, my dad did. in Denver and Boulder? Yeah, yeah, they did. And my and my dad, most importantly, and I remember being like four years old and going into his closet. And it was like a dad closet, which had you know just cool dad stuff. You know, there was just cool trinkets and stuff and cufflinks and you know maybe a rifle or something but the coolest thing to me on the top shelf was his stetson and i remember thinking i can't wait till i'm old enough to have my own all right well congratulations brother you made it <laughs> tell me about growing up in colorado i uh, love colorado i mean what'd your dad do my, my, he was a doctor mm-hmm. he was a doctor and a great classic country doctor you know the kind of guy that you know went bankrupt a couple of times because he was always working for free and helping people out and you know bar- we have like tons of art that people would give him instead of money for surgery he was just one of those great classic docs and spent a lot I of time most of the people in boulder self-medicated but that's <laughs> well that's true and, and especially up in the mountains where i live now but uh the great thing is that uh i now have a daughter and grandchildren in colorado and we've, we've kind of come full circle and i'm back in the mountains of colorado which i love and and you guys moved to texas yeah, I, I I was in the music business for a while until I realized that that was not the best use of my talent and uh, <laughs> famously hung with Chris Christopherson. Well, I got really lucky when I was in high school. He he uh, heard our band and then decided to produce us to try to get us a record deal. Which no surprise if you heard the tapes didn't work out. But but I ran away. I got the bug and I ran away from home. Hitchhiked to Nashville. Lived in his apartment for about three years. Kicked around the music business. That's how I ended up in Austin, Texas. I went to play at the Kerrville Folk Festival in 1975 in Texas and discovered Austin and fell in love with Austin. And that's how I got there. And then did that for a while, but on the arc that I was on, I, I realized I was going to end up as like the second act at the Pflugerville Holiday Inn <laughs> when I was 50 years old. And I said, it's time to go to Plan B. Yeah, you didn't want to, you didn't want to do the try the veal thing? No. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, so talk about Plan B. Well... Part of the reason I love songwriting is I've always loved storytelling, and 
and, and I, I loved writing. I always loved writing, like you. And the reason I liked music was the songwriting part of the business. Mm -hmm. So, well, and country music, yeah, uh, was is, yeah. Is, is is that's all it is. It's, it's all storytelling. Exactly right. And Chris Christopher yeah. was one of the best storytellers. Of Did you, by the way, did you Sunday work morning. on stores, uh, uh, songs with him? Absolutely not. I mean, the, the last thing Chris Christopher needed was any help from anybody, especially me. Now he was just really a, a great mentor, and you know, let me live in his apartment and kick around the. He's still around, house. right? He is, yeah. Do yeah, you keep he, in touch with him? Yeah, I do. I uh, you know, saw him about a year ago when he came to Austin, and uh, he's doing well. But, you know, he's, uh, he's having some, some issues with, uh, from his boxing days, you know, and lots of concussions. So he's starting to... I saw uh, the other day, I was uh, scanning through TV, I saw an old tape of The Highwaymen. Oh, yeah, boy, what Johnny, a classic Johnny Cash and Willie Waylon Nelson, Jennings. Waylon Jennings, and... And Chris Christopherson was like the young guy in the group. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was a cool group of dudes. So anyway, back to you. Uh, so you, Plan B. Yeah, uh, well, I was there in uh, Austin, Texas, and there was this big university, and I had always said I'd try a little higher education, so I did that, and very quickly migrated to the Daily Texan, which is the newspaper there at the University of Texas, and then... Uh, quick, you know, I love to write, and so I wrote a lot. And I wrote a lot about politics because I love politics. So I started writing about politics. Why did you love politics? Just always had. I mean, just always been passionate about. Were your folks? Not particularly, but you know, I was a child of the '60s, and it was hard to grow up in the '60s yeah. without being somewhat yeah. political. Yeah, yeah. You know, just barely missed getting drafted, and uh, so uh, just was surrounded by all that. And and then there was a local state senator in Austin named Lloyd Doggett. Yeah. Who decided? I had Bagala on a few weeks ago, so well, yeah, we talked so, about that campaign. So Paul and I have a lot of history, and and a lot of people have a lot of history with that campaign. It was a kind of a seminal campaign for a lot of people who are still in the business today. Steve Domenico and you know lots of people that you know. Oh well, uh, James Carville. Carville, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was really in, in a uh, well. It was uh, <clears throat> so I I went to volunteer for that campaign. I just thought you know this is interesting. Was I'll Kiki go. Moore in there? Yes, Kiki yeah, was there. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, a uh, lot, lot of great Linda. A whole uh, Linda Moore was there. Yeah, lot, lot of a whole generation of a whole generation. Yeah. We had another campaign that the same year, which was '84. Uh -huh. uh, I was doing the Paul Simon campaign in Illinois. But Gal and I were talking about this, and you know, Rahm was a young Rahm Emanuel was a young yeah. field guy, and there yeah. were, the whole well, bunch my, of people. My went counterpart on in that campaign on the other on the Republican side was John Weaver. Oh, is that yeah, right? Yeah. Famously now, John Kasich's alter ego. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I went over there, and, uh, you know, I'd never worked on a political campaign, but I just wanted to volunteer and was happy to do that. Did that for a week or two, and then I saw a sign down in the basement that said, you know, looking for people to do data input for five bucks an hour, and, I was, and that was like a lot more money than I'd ever made. And I said, great, I'll do that. Did that for a couple of weeks, and I was in the basement, and then one day Begala walked down to the basement and goes, Hey, McKinnon's down here. This, <laughs> this guy can do some press. So they floated me up to the press office, and then I started doing press. And, and then I just completely got the bug. And, and this is also, I mean, we, it was a great classic campaign. We won the big upset primary, and then we got crushed in the general. It was Reagan year. Yes. And, uh, and then I thought, well, that's the end of my political career. And then this is when I discovered you can fail upward in politics. And I got a call from the governor's office the next week saying, come on over. You... Uh, well, Doggett actually uh, is still around too. He is. So he's, it wasn't he's still the end. Everybody no? involved in that campaign yeah. is still around and 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 <laughs> which is and like doing I said stuff. about politics, you can fail upwards. So, you, who was the governor then? Was it Mark, Mark White? White. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what did you do for him? I did. I was a press assistant in the press office of the governor's office, and then I went over and was the press secretary for his campaign. And that's when 
I started working with people like Ray Struther and media, great, David great Sawyer. Cla- two great classic yeah, media, the, media yeah, the consultants kind of giants of, of our era. business. Yeah. yeah. And then I said, that's what I want to do. I really thought that was cool. And then I was going to... Was, was, were they, did they work with White? Is yeah, that how you yeah that's know? right. They worked mm-hmm. with uh, White. And then I said, this mar- that married up all my interests, you know, writing, you know, uh, television, storytelling. Yeah. This is, you know, uh, we have parallel stories because, uh, you know, Bob Squire was yeah. our, the media consultant, another one of the giants of early... Well, uh, Squire and Sawyer were really the pioneers. In fact, yeah. there was a book written about them called Alpha Dogs. I don't know if you've read that, but you no. should if you haven't, because that book details the evolution of the export of American-style campaigns. Huh. And it's really interesting. And it's written, with a, it was written by like a legitimate Wall Street Journal reporter. So it's, not, it's, 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 you know, it's, a, it's got a critical view of it, too. Yeah. It's not just some yeah, hagiography yeah. of those guys. Those guys were great characters. They were great characters. I could tell stories about them all day. What did, uh, so you went to work for Struther. No, what happened is I was I, I Ray Raymond offered me a job and but I had a couple of different options. One by the way was Dick Morris called me and asked me if I wanted to go to work for a governor in Arkansas named Bill Clinton, uh, and I got on a conference call with Dick Morris and Betsy Wright to talk about that. My goodness, yeah. Gary Morrow and what happened? The land commissioner. What happened was I talked to somebody who I really admired and respected, and they said, "If you think you know anything about politics, go to Louisiana and get your PhD." Mm-hmm. So I, I, I talked to Raymond all those days. I said, I'd, I'd love to do it, but I need he to... He was from Louisiana, right? Yes, yes yeah. In yeah. fact, uh, yeah, he and, he and, when I told him, he said, I completely endorse that, and it's true, and by God, it was. That was the by far my favorite year in politics, and I learned more that year than I have the rest of Working my life. Working for Buddy Romer? Working for Buddy Romer, who was a, you know, barely mentioned in most of the stories about that race early on. He was a congressman from Northeast Louisiana, and nobody ever wins from Northeast Louisiana because it's lightly populated. And we were running against Edwin Edwards, yeah. you know, the greatest can- and he'd, he'd won 19 elections in a row. Yes, and then he served a, co- a term elsewhere but, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. at the request of the federal government. Yeah, and, and here's, here's, here's the classic, why it's so colorful in Louisiana. I'm working for Buddy Romer, who's this reformer running against Edwin Edwards, whose former chief of staff, Buddy Romer's father, was in prison at the time. <laughs> yeah, that's Louisiana. Woo! Yeah. That's some great stuff. I mean, that's some Robert Penn Warren yeah. shit right there. Yeah. My uh, favorite Edward, Edward story was when he was running against David Treen, the Republican oh, yeah. governor, who was kind of a prim guy. And, uh, and they said uh, to him, Treen says, if you get elected, you're going to steal everything. And uh, he said, if Treen is there for four more years, there won't be anything left to steal. <laughs> and I think it was maybe it was Treen about Edward said it takes him an hour and a half to watch sixty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Edwards was. Uh, he was Edwards so good. Was, I mean, you know, we we talk about politicians and and we and what's compelling today, and and you look at what works and what doesn't, and what people really are hungry for today is authenticity. That's the kind of thing Edwards had. I mean, he was like. People knew that he stole and he cheated, but they, he's right. like he's. But he was candid about it. He said, yeah. I, "Yeah, I do, but I steal for you." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's sort of the Louisiana tradition, yeah. you know. I mean, and Huey, Huey Long and all of yeah. that. Yeah. So, but Romer did a great you, ad in that campaign. It was a Ray Maybe Struther. Ray Struther ad. I think it's one of the greatest. One of the classic ads of, ads of, all, of time. all time. Yeah. To yeah. so talk about that. Well, Buddy Romer was just he, the reason he was so compelling was that he was a, a great mix of. Louisiana raconteur. Um, he was a big uh, poker player and reported his poker earnings during Congress. But he also went to. Here's the trick. You know, he does all this kind of the James Carville thing, this you know, sticking thing. But then it turns out he went to Harvard at 16 
and then got his MBA at Harvard at 18. You know, super smart. Yeah. And uh, uh, so, uh, but, but we were, uh, in fact, I remember at one point in the campaign, we were so broke that we were going to, we were going to, we had a press idea that we were going to, we had like, you know, $50,000 left in the campaign, and we decided that uh, we'd just go for, but we'd go to Las Vegas and put it all on red. And we'd either, you know, go broke or keep the campaign going. Did you do it? No, we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't. But, but the Romer ad. Oh, I'm sorry, the yes. Romer ad. Uh, yeah, uh, so the great thing about, I mean, you and I both know that, you know, the, sort of the most boring thing you can do in politics is a talking head ad. Well, this, this con contradicts that, because this guy on camera was so compelling, lit it up. But his basic message was that it was kind of the, this reform message before there were reformers, you know, right. and especially in Louisiana. But the last line was one that I loved. He, I mean, he said, I'm going to take on, you know, I'm going to you know, burn down the Department of Education. Yeah, I'm going to yeah, do this, I'm going to yeah. do that. But the last line, which was so great, he said, I love Louisiana. I love Louisiana enough to make some people angry. Yeah. Yeah, he said, I know I've made people angry. And he was, a, the thing I loved about him was he was a great example. You know, so many politicians that we work for want to make everybody happy. Romer understood the value of stepping on some big toes, yeah. you know, and make it clear that I'm willing to take out some people. Yeah. You know, I believe strongly enough that I'm going to take some pain. Yeah, well, I, uh, you know, take that, on the unions that, that, that ad was one that I really studied closely when I started out because, yes, it was, it was, the thing that made it work was it was utterly authentic. His yeah. passion was clear. Yeah. He said things that other people weren't willing to say, and uh, it, it really cut through. So you went out on your own and started doing ads. I did. At first, I went to New York, and I worked for David Sawyer, who was uh, Bob Squire's counterpart right. and one of the real godfathers of the business. And the thing that was great for me was that, you know, he was older, and at that point, you know, he didn't want to be running around the world, but he and Bob Squire, like I said, had started like exporting American-style democracy. So I got to do campaigns in South America and Africa, and you know, he'd get hired and then send me to, to go do the work. So I really got thrown in the deep end fast, and it was a great way to learn. And then pretty, I did that for a while. And was then Mandy Grunwald? Mandy, there? yeah, worked side by now side with Mandy. Now with Hillary yeah. Clinton has been for years. Yeah, and very, you know, very, very smart. Lady. Well, super smart, and you know, and uh, I mean, she was. I mean, I sat side by side with her, and she was an awesome talent then, is an awesome talent now, and I yeah. learned a lot from her too. Yeah. So then you went out on your own. I did. Yeah. Then I had this uh, one of the other greats of our business is a guy named Roy Spence from Texas, yeah. and Roy had uh, done politics for a long time. Has done a lot of work with Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. Yes, and still I think yeah, he's in you know, touch still with them. very much a consigliere and close friend, yeah. uh, and one of the great, great talents and great people in the business. Uh, but he, he decided that he was going to get out of the political business at the time, just go completely commercial. And then I just saw an opening then and said, there's, a, you know, there's room for another ad guy down in Texas. So I went and set up shop down in Texas. And you and I met in 1991 uh, working for a guy named Bob Lanier in Houston, Texas, who was really one of the, one of the most interesting guys that I've ever worked for. He really was. Uh, in so many ways, that was such an interesting campaign. Running, running for mayor. Start, yeah, he was running for mayor, and this was a guy who was old, white, rich, and this is the sort of thing where people like you and I kind of sit down with him early on the campaign, and he says something like, I'm, I'm thinking about running for mayor, and we look at the data, and we kind of go, you might want to rethink this, because right. it's like everything the voters hated he was, a real estate guy, a banker, a lawyer, you know, just not compelling in any way on paper, but beyond the paper... He was a real live 
deep human being who cared passionately about city and sort of in the old style of like he was a citizen who just wanted to give something back. And his big issue, and he was, he was re he, you know, he looked at the city budget like a balance sheet. He was a mainstream computer take, in his head. Yeah. He wanted to take money from a, a, a transit system the mayor wanted to build and put it into more police on the streets. Yeah, and people were really concerned about uh, crime. crime and safety at that point. And, there were, and this was a classic example of, you know, people saying, well, you know, Article 3 of, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, City Rule 4 says you can't do that. And he says, elect me and watch me. Yeah, you and know? he did it. The thing, uh, the thing that, the, the reason we got to know each other so well, first of all, he was so rich they could afford two well, media he, consultants. Yeah, he did a Noah's Ark of consultants. Yes. He, like, just had two of everybody. And we all stayed on the third floor of his mansion Yeah, and we Houston. lived with him. He, I mean, that's how, he, you know, he was a, a super confident guy, but he didn't know politics. So you hire, if I hire you guys, you got to live with me. And yeah. we did. Yeah, yeah. But one of my favorite stories from that campaign was, you know, in a classic budget meeting of the campaign, we were all in there. We're all arguing for our little piece of the pie. I'm like, no, we need, you know, 10,000 more for media and the, the mail guy saying, well, now we need 20 for mail and we need, you know, street money. And we're having this big argument. And Lanier, who was 6'4 and had like size 15 boots and a big cigar was in the back of the room and he leans back. And I remember just hearing his booming boats going, boys, quit. Uh, he said, uh, uh, yeah, so, so Lanier leans back and he says, uh, boys, just spend it till you waste it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are, the, those are good clients to have. That's yeah. a useful thing. Yeah. Uh, but he ended and up. By the way, we needed every bit of brain power to win that election. Yeah, it and, and really well, as you remember, brain power and more. Yeah, and some luck. Yeah. <laughs> remember that? Some yeah. wild developments. But that guy is now mayor of Houston, Sylvester Turner. Yeah. Yeah, that guy we beat. he was talented. Super talented. That's yeah. why it was ran, tough Ran runoff. into some trouble at the yeah. end. That turned out. He, a little bit of a scandal that w turned out in his favor at the end of the day. Didn't he win a lawsuit on this? Yeah, he did. Yeah, 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 uh, uh, yeah he did. He won a libel lawsuit against the television station. Yeah, yeah. Sometime after you and I worked together on that Lanier campaign, and in Texas, the lines were always a little blurry between Democrats and, and Republicans. Well, uh, not just blurry. I mean, you, it's, it's hard for people to remember back that far, uh, but it's really not that ancient history. But in... Like in 1990, I worked with Ann Richards, ran for governor, and she won. There's 28 constitutional statewide offices in Texas. In 1990, every single one of them was a Democrat. In 2008, eight years later, every single one of them was a Republican. There was no Republican Party in Texas for the longest time. You were either a conservative Democrat or a Democrat. You were a Lloyd Benson Democrat or you were a Ralph Yarborough Democrat. Right. So there really wasn't an alternative. If you were there, you were a Democrat. And I just, you know, the evolution happened right as I was getting older. I was having family. I was, you know, there were some issues. working for a public strategies at that point. I, right? Yeah, working for a company that we started called Public Strategies. That did corporate work. Did corporate work in public affairs. And um, uh, so I was kind of focused on that. But I was also very close to the lieutenant governor of Texas named Bob Bullock, mm -hmm. who was a legendary character. And Bob Bullock became a mentor to George W. Bush, and they became very close friends. And they governed in a way in Texas that, you know, we all wish. Lieutenant governor is very powerful Super in Texas. powerful, yeah, yeah, really more powerful than the governor. And they showed what, you know, what it's like when you have real bipartisan leadership. And we should explain more powerful because they basically run the state senate, right? They run the state senate and, uh, yeah, have all kinds of executive authority. Uh, that, and the governor has limited powers, but... Anyway, they, they became very close, so close that when Bush ran for re-election, Bullock, the Democrat, endorsed Bush over his godson, Gary Morrow, who ran against Bush. Uh, but Awkward. 
Yeah, <laughs> just, just a little. Uh, and so in the middle of that, I had gotten to know George Bush. I was doing a, I had gotten excited about charter schools, and I was doing a, I'd done a kind of a film thing about charter schools, and so I had a meeting with him, showed him the film. He got excited about charter schools too, and then we got to know each other just on a social level, and he had girls just about my girl's age, two girls, I had two girls. He liked to run, I liked to run. We started running together and just, you know, and biking. And, um, and then in the middle of all that, his media guy at the time got into some legal trouble and had to bail out. And so Bob Bullock and Carl Rove and some others kind of uh, got together and said, you know, what, what, why don't we have McKinnon do this? And so uh, You Bob, have any, any reluctance at all? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, it was a very difficult decision. It took me months to make it. And I, you know, and I thought long and hard about it. But I had... At that time, you know, just ideologically, I mean, I've always been kind of in the middle somewhere. I was a little left of center early on in my life, but I'd kind of grown more conservative and it was kind of a radical free trader and, you know, just on some issues, it just been kind of drifting more conservative. And then the, the most powerful thing was that George Bush came along with this message about compassionate conservatism. And it, this is, again, amazing to think about now, but one of the big messages that he was talking about at the time that really attracted me was his pro-immigration message. Mm -hmm. He was embraced it full-throated. I mean, he was a big-time right. uh, immigration supporter. And that was a big issue in our campaign in 19... I remember some advisors in 1999 saying, I'm, you, know, the, you should be careful about this issue. And he said, oh, no, I'm, uh, I don't care what you think. Well, an interesting sidelight to that, I was uh, doing uh, the campaign for John Sharp in 1998. Oh, who was right. running for lieutenant God, governor against, so many against uh, right. Rick Perry. Yeah, and right. uh, Sharp lost by a point and a half. And the margin of defeat was the fact that... Um, the turnout in the Hispanic areas was so low, primarily because people were satisfied with George Bush. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, there was no right. impetus to come out and vote for Democrats. That's so interesting. Uh, so, uh, you know, and that was largely a reflection of uh, Bush's uh, position on immigration. Yeah, so he was, uh, you know, this whole, I was really attracted to that idea and that message. And so uh, I crossed the bridge and... You know, with the exception of a few, um, few rifle shots, most people, including people like Paul Begala, came out and publicly said, listen, I, you know, I know McKinnon. I trust, you know, I trust that this is a, you know, I trust his motive here that is pure. And of this, course, not some you, calculated political you could move. steal a car and Begala would come to your defense because he's an, he's a ultimately loyal guy. Well, that's because I got all the secrets on Begala. <laughs> <laughs> he would say the same about you. Well, it's true. Uh, but uh, so you went and you worked for Bush. Talk about Bush. Um, as a person? Well, as I said, I, I, I sort of got to know him personally before I got to know him professionally, and he's, he's one of the people you meet, not just in politics, but in life, that uh, is so engaging and so authentic, so fun, you know, uh, and also a, a real moral clarity about the guy. This was a guy that you meet, and you just, you know, he kind of sees life in sort of black and white in terms of values, you know, about honesty and family and um, and I initially sort of, in a way, he was kind of a mentor to me in the sense of like being a father and a citizen. You know, I kind of looked at him and I'd just been, you know, running around doing my business and stuff. And I, he kind of caught my attention. It's like, you know, you need to start thinking about how you live your life. Well, you know, he not had just done some deep do. thinking about how yeah. he lived his life. Yeah, right? yeah. He went through some sure. dissolute times. Big time, big time. Yeah. And so that, that caught my attention. And then, uh, uh, he, like I said, he had a real clarity of vision and what he believed, and so I love that politically. But the other thing about him is that, you know, uh, we talk about these 
you know, this is the classic focus group story. You know, the, the people that we ran against, we were blessed by our opposition in, in both 2000 and 2004 in the sense that even if people disagreed with George Bush politically, they saw him as an authentic See, kind of character. So, so you go, we go through these focus groups and people say, I disagree with him on this, I disagree with him on that, I disagree with him on that. And in the end, you'd say, uh, well, if you had an opportunity to go have a beer with Al Gore or George Bush, unanimous George Bush. Right. Yeah. No, I think this is, um, I, I really do think authenticity is a leading indicator in presidential races. I think people want someone who they Especially think is comfortable now. in their own skin. You know, David, I, when I first got the job to do Bush's media, I, I was honored but petrified because I'd never done anything on that scale, and it scared the hell out of me. It was a huge responsibility. So the first thing I did was I went back and did a bunch of due diligence and studied political advertising, presidential political advertising, from the very beginning. And... And what and studied it and to see what it you know what worked what didn't and it was fascinating I, I had this whole I used to have this, like a, a long presentation yeah, just yeah. about that because you see it change and evolve over time because as voters get used to something you know you tr it's like a virus or something you know you you inoculate it and then you try something new so you see you know high concept stuff for a while works and it, it kind of moves along those those axes but uh, but what I really saw happen. Recently, I say recently, the last 10 years, and with George W. Bush, is that power of authenticity. Because, as you know, political advertising these days, you know, is is minimally effective because people just don't believe it. They yeah. just they say it's a you know you got the First Amendment, you can say whatever you want, and right. all politicians lie. So well, why there's I so much of it saying? too. Yeah. What with the proliferation, Citizens United, and the proliferation of ads. Right. And, so, but I, I I think the old constructs of political advertising are people. It's like antibiotics. People have you know. The, that's the word I was looking for, know, antibiotics, that's yeah, perfect. Yeah, people have de developed... Well, so I did things with Bush that, that were... I, I almost never did anything that was scripted. It was always something, you know, uh, just pulled from an interview or off of the trail. But here's an example. So we were shooting the, the classic biofilm for the convention. Um, this is, you know, your candidate gets introduced, a lot of people are going to see him, so there's the classic thing where you produce a bio a biofilm, you know, a 10-minute yeah, film. Yeah, sure. Um, which you've done many of. And so we're shooting it. And we're interviewing uh, then-Governor Bush and Laura Bush, and he's talking about uh, being in the delivery room when their twins were born. And he's talking about it, and he completely mangles what he was trying to say, just garbles it completely. And he and Laura laugh about it. And we say, okay, that was funny. Okay, back up. Let's do it again. We do like two or three takes till he gets it just right. Well, I get to the edit room to edit the, the, the film, and that moment comes up, and we start to cut it and get the, the good one patched in. And I said, well, wait a minute. Let's, let's watch that again. And we all cracked up. I said, let's leave it. <laughs> and and, and, the, and the, you can imagine the campaign, they went batshit. Yeah. It's like, what are you, you were going to leave a mistake in the film? And I, yeah. said, I said, yeah. I said, listen, it's authentic, it's human, it's funny, people can relate. And by the way, let's not raise the bar of expectations on this guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? I mean, he's not going to be the best orator or speech giver in presidential Which history. Which he's pretty but, open but, about. But, yeah. yeah, he is. And So let's just be authentic about this and say he is who he is and... And, you know, and then so we did leave it in, and, and it really worked. You know, when Rich Daly uh, ran for mayor of Chicago in 1989, and I worked for him, uh, you know, he had lost in 83. There was this, he still was viewed by many people as kind of the not as smart sort of knockoff of his dad. Mm -hmm. He didn't, he, he, like his dad, didn't, you know, English didn't seem like it came naturally to <laughs> not him. Not a first language. And uh, so, uh, you know, we did an intern introductory ad in which he said uh it was direct to camera kind of thing he says i may not be the best speaker in town but i know how to 
run a government and how to bring people together, and that's what we need now. Uh, and uh, just the admission yeah. that, you yeah. know, I know what you guys think, and, and you're right, you know, I'm yeah. not, uh, it, it was disarming. It goes a long way. It was it goes disarming. a long way. I mean, that candor. And also, by the way, just people today, you know, they're suspicious of perfection. They actually like a little bit of vulnerability, some human element to say that this is, this is actually a real person. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I think, you know, somehow reflecting some moments of vulnerability uh, can actually help a campaign. Speaking of moments of vulnerability, you told me a story about what happened, and I had parallel stories with Obama. What happened when you guys got blown out in New Hampshire by John McCain oh, in, two, in, in, uh, in uh, 2000. And, you know, you were really on the ropes there. And you, you told me that you walked into a meeting with uh, Bush, and you honestly didn't know the day after that primary whether everybody was going to be asked to leave? Or? Oh, not only did we not, I mean, I remember I was with Stuart Stevens, uh, who, who just did the, the Romney campaign, uh, and we were in our apartment, that we were at lunch uh, with a journalist, with Carl Rove, Stuart and I, and we got the news. And Stuart immediately said, let's go pack, because we're fired. And he said, I've, I've, I've been in this movie before, we're gone. We went, and we got a call to come over to visit with uh, Governor Bush, and, you know, the sort of senior staff went over there, and we walked in just, you know, prepared to get our asses kicked. And it was, it was so powerful and so completely contradictory what we expected because we walked in and he said, I got a message for you guys. This is on me. You guys did a great job. I let you down. I'm, I'm sorry. He said, but when we walk out of here, heads held high. I want to walk out of here looking like we just won, you know, the best victory we've ever won. And, and that's, when you, that's when we all said, man, sign me up for life. Yeah, well, you know, I have a completely... <laughs> and Peggy Noonan, by the way, wrote a, a, a piece about his speech that night and said, if you turned off the sound, you would have thought that was a victory speech. Had the same uh, experiences with Obama when he lost New Hampshire and he was supposed to win New Hampshire to Hillary Clinton. And more than that, uh, he was Texas and Ohio in 2008. The notion was if we had won those two, that she was done. Right. And we lost them both. And he said, I want to see everybody tomorrow. So we go in. We don't know, same as you. And he walks in and he says, you know, I can think of 12 things I could have done better in the last two weeks. And I bet everybody in this room could too. He said, so I'm not here to talk about that. I want to figure out what, where we go from here and what we learn from this. And we had this two-hour discussion. At the end of it, he's walking out of the room and he turns around and he says, look, I'm not, uh, I'm not yelling at you guys. I want you to understand that. And then he said, takes another couple of steps and he turns around and says, of course, after blowing $20 million in two weeks, he said, <laughs> I could yell at you. He says, but I'm not yelling at you. And he laughed and walked out of the That's room. Great. And you know what? Everybody in that room would have run through a wall for him. Exactly. But I actually think campaigns are tests of how these guys are going to handle pressure. Adversity. You know? The adversity yeah. test is where you really see leadership. I had another thing I was going to just a parallel story that I thought was funny because I think I remember calling you when it happened, which is, the first debate of an incumbent president. Oh, my. You know, because it's just so, the dynamics of debates are so, by the way, I think this first debate of this fall may be the most watched television event I in agree history. With you. I agree I think history. this, yeah, I think so this whole first thing of all, it, as we can this. both testify, it's like the highest wire act in politics, yeah. right? I mean, because your guy goes out there without a net. Yeah. And man, it is big time tension city. Oh, my God. Right? Yeah. But the funny thing that happens with an incumbent president is they've been a president for four years, they're used to a lot of people saying yes, sir. Yeah, nobody getting in their grill. <laughs> nobody getting in their grill. They're feeling pretty bulletproof. Yeah. The last thing they want to do is go debate. Yeah. They don't want to debate this, this jokester that's been out here going through, you know. Yeah. You know they, well, they don't think belongs there. Doesn't think belongs there. Yeah. And uh, I, I think 
I remember we had the classic experience where, uh, so he, President Bush is debating, and it's awful. I mean, it's, it, is, <laughs> it is as bad as it could be. But he walks off the stage and it's like, good, right? Yeah, I know. Like, uh, oh, so, no. you, you know, we, this is just continues the parallel lives we've left. And by the way, you, you were always generous. I, I was the beneficiary of your experiences throughout because I, <laughs> I, I was the next cycles. Yeah. And you, and I, I, I think I, I called you after your first debate. I said, yeah. David, get ready for this. I, you know, I know yeah. what's going to happen. But, you know, uh, I, I circled that date on the calendar, that first debate in Denver, months in advance, in red, because I knew what the history of this was. And we tried so hard to get him ready. Get him, and, yeah, get you know, right, he yeah. just... Uh, and, uh, you know, the, we, there was a sense of doom heading to Denver because everybody knew, <laughs> yep. you know, and we went into the, his locker room, you know, in yeah. an arena before the debate, Pluff and I went in and just to give him the old attaboy kind of thing. And he said, let's just get this over with and get out of here, which is not what you want to hear. You <laughs> That's know? classic. Yeah. yeah but, but, but he was really challenged by the second debate. We had a few tense moments prepping for the second debate too but um when we went in to see him before the second debate he said uh obama said uh we're gonna have a good night tonight and you know and he just knew and he went out and he just you know but he needed to get knocked on his yep. butt to yep. uh, uh to uh, perform on bush uh you ran as compassionate conservatives um and a whole bunch of stuff happened first of all you know, from a, I'll give you the sort of progressive critique, but the, uh, the, the, the squandering of the deficits, of the, uh, of the surplus on big tax cuts at a time of war, so you end up... Also prescription drugs. Right, right, which you could argue was a, an act that's of a compassion. compassion. Um, but the war itself... Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, uh, our buddy Matthew Dowd, yeah. He was a just, fellow at my institute, which yeah. I hope you will be no, just at some point when you're in hiatus from your television career. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, Matthew was traumatized by the Iraq yeah. uh, war, and his son went off and yeah. served and so on, yeah. and really split with the president uh, over that. I mean, were there moments there where you had sort of say, well, where do we how do we take this fork in the road here? How did the Bush presidency become about this and so on? Of course, uh, you know, there were, that was such, you know, tra uh, traumatic, dramatic, tragic time in, in our history. Uh, but, you know, th those decisions were so far beyond my pay grade. And, you know, I, I, I could only trust that the guy that I knew and had worked for and had been loyal to was making the decisions on the best evidence that he had at the time. And, you know, it, we all know how it turned out, and it wasn't good evidence. And uh, we all, you know, the, the, the world has paid a price for that. But, but I, I, I never had a note. I mean, my counsel, I mean, I, you know, there were times when I didn't agree with the direction, but I, kept, I offered my counsel and, and was not always in the majority. But my counsel was always welcome, not always taken, but, uh, but it's always private. You know, it's not, not anything that I've ever, ever discussed. You, you know, every, my experience is that, uh, and certainly my experience with this, the president that I serve, is that presidents get stronger as they go along because they become more experienced, uh, confident. Sure. Um, you know, Under it's natural. Yeah. Um, do you, you know, the, 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 the 
the interpretation of the story that you always get is um, he ceded too much early to Cheney, to others, and that he came into his own late, later in his presidency when he sort of seized control back. Do you think Cheney had too much influence in that administration? I think, I think the narrative uh, belief about that is distorted. I mean, I think that George Bush was always in charge, but I think he picked a strong number two, knowing that he could exert that kind of authority. Uh, but, I, but, I, but, I, but the notion that sort of Dick Cheney was ever kind of, you know, a puppet master, I think, it distorts the real picture. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I remember, I mean, early on, uh, you know, I was a McCain man. I, I, I thought McCain would have been a great number two for the president. So, uh, and, and uh, you know, Dick Cheney and I were kind of like Venus and Mars. We first introduced us like, I don't get you, you don't get me. Let's just leave it like that. Uh -huh. <laughs> so you didn't have much interaction with him. I probably had, you know, maybe two paragraphs in eight years. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about this election you know, we talked about authenticity. It's a circus out there. Yes, David. it is. And I'm, I want, we're going to finish up by talking about this extraordinary production that you're uh, involved in uh, during this campaign. Because I, I really, I love, you know, we do, we're both storytellers and the campaigns are odysseys and uh, should be told. That's why such. I wanted to do it, yeah. Yeah. But um, let's talk about the odyssey itself. Uh, where, uh, what are your observations, having been on the road, of these two candidates and how people interact and how people in, are in, intuiting, you know, their sense of them? Well, you know, I should point out before you answer that question, one of the things that I've always been jealous of is that you used to do your own focus groups. <laughs> and I always wanted, you know, my mom was in qualitative research. I always thought it'd be cool. I, I love any reporter. I was started as a reporter as well. Loves to ask questions and learn from what people have to say. You're out there on the road now, not just with candidates, but with people. So talk about how you think people are viewing this election. Well, they're viewing it in such a different way, David. And, and the, the thing that got my attention more than anything in this election was the first Trump rally that I went to. And, you know, I'd kind of heard things, and I went, and I've been in politics about the same time as you have, which is a long time. I've never seen anything remotely close to what I saw at that first Trump rally. I mean, the people, the, the energy, the Trump himself, which was all just blew my mind completely. Now, I have thought for a while that the opening for a, uh, a conceptual candidate like that, a businessman, outsider, I went back and looked, because I've kind of looked at third-party possibilities yeah, you know, and that sort of thing, you know, things. just, uh, so I, looked, I went back and looked at the Ross Perot candidacy and looked at the, the research from that election, like the right track, wrong track, all those sort of fundamentals that we look at. And they were, they were, uh, uh, they were of a nature that made a candidacy like Perot's possible, but, but you look at those same kind of metrics flash forward to like three years ago or something, it's like times 10. So the, the notion that somebody like, like Trump could run, I mean, it was, a, it was an opening a mile wide. But this, the, the fact that it was Trump was what was surprising and that he would do it by, by literally doing a hostile takeover of the Republican Party, was, which is, is what was so surprising, and that he could mow down a field. Like, but the interesting thing about the election is that, you know, we're used to kind of seeing 
you know, somewhere, some, I'd just say in the middle of the kind of scales of insider versus outsider candidates are somewhere in there, although you had, you know, a sort of classic outsider in a way. Yes. But here we have, like, sort of the most extreme possibilities, right, of, like, the, the ultimate insider, uh, aristocracy kind of uh, royal candidate. Uh, and then we have the, you know, on the other end of the uh, uh, extreme, you know, a, a real estate billionaire who's never held office. And, right. and so we just have this interesting situation where we, you know, usually it's somewhere in the middle, and this time it's like just starkly and... And how are people, what, what do you see at, at her, around her? Um, I, you know, you see... Meaning Hillary. Obviously. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, it, it is a much more subdued, much less emotional, but very committed sort of audiences that, you know, believe in her, believe in her competency, um, believe that she's ready, prepared to be president, and then, you know, but but not a lot of emotion, you know. And the Trump rallies are just the opposite. I mean, it's pure emotion. Yeah, but let me let me ask you this: We're sitting here in Cleveland. We we're, we just went through the first night of the uh, Republican uh, convention. Um, it was, um, you know, if you had high cholesterol, this was not the place to be. This was a total red meat fest. Yeah other than Melania, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, uh, my question is, are there enough uh, white voters, are there enough white voters to win an election in 2016? It, Your guy, Karl Rove and George Bush, understood that Hispanics were a growing constituency in this country. There was an outreach to minorities. Uh, George Bush got 44% of the Hispanic yeah. vote in 2000. Yeah. And four, and that's one of the reasons why he. Yeah. Was well, interestingly, uh, I mean, and at the end of the day, it is about math. I mean, you got to add up to you know fifty point one right. somehow, somewhere, or, or whatever you need. There'll be some other candidates on the ballot, but right, right, a a, a plurality enough right. to win. So in in so in two thousand four, well, in in two thousand when we ran. Uh, Matthew, Dad, we kind of sat down and said, "What do we need to do? How do we need to perform with Hispanics?" And he said, "Well, we need." Uh, 40% of the Hispanic vote in order to win. We got 41. Uh, the, but after we won in 2000, Dowd came in like a month later and he said, you know, before everybody gets all excited about this, uh, we better recognize that if we get 41 next time, we lose. Right. We got to get 42 next time and we got 43. Right. So uh, George Bush and the campaign understood that the, we had to have a coalition and a, and a big tent. Now, you go from that Wall, to... Wall Street Journal poll the other day, Donald Trump, 14% I, was gonna say, I think Hispanics. McCain got 27, or Romney got around Romney 27. got 27. McCain got in the 30s. Okay, so 30s, 27. So we're clawing our way to the bottom with Hispanics. and now As Trump, they're growing, as a constituent. As they're growing. And so I, you know, Are there enough white votes to replace the votes that he is kicking away? Well, um, it, it's hard to see it on paper. It, it's really hard to see it. I mean, I, and even if you do, boy, you know, that's, you know, I, for, for the sake of the Republican Party and the sake of our country, you know, I, I hope we don't have a president that is simply elected with one demographic constituency. But did you see anything last night that would suggest to you that there's a significant outreach going on? No. No, no. I, I, you know, uh, I, I, Paul Manafort, who's running the, the, the campaign, said, told a group of reporters that they're modeling it. And I had sort of tweeted about this before he said it because it looked familiar to me, the Law and Order campaign, that they're running the Nixon 68 campaign. But 
I, I don't I don't know where exactly the demographics were then, but whites were probably a much larger percentage. Well, of the population. upward, you know, upward pro, upwards of ninety percent probably. Yeah. I mean, voting population. Yeah. I mean, so you know, that's a kind of flawed. Well, calculus. It, it, it would it would mean necessarily having to bring in a ton of voters of white voters who didn't haven't voted before, right? Uh, and, and 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 registering and signing up, but. Uh, which which requires an organization that they don't really have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the narrowest of paths. You know, Mitt Romney and got fifty nine percent of the white vote yeah. in uh, two thousand and twelve, and that was the most anybody had gotten since George H W Bush. I know, Bush, amazing. And he got two hundred and six electoral votes. <laughs> right. uh, now Donald Trump may get more than fifty nine percent, although in that same poll he was uh not close i mean hillary was getting 37 percent uh i think uh, obama got 39 percent of the white vote in 2012 so i'm just trying to figure out where this thing is going you know i it's one thing to win a nomination within the republican yeah. party you know i just don't know where that as you say where the math adds yeah up. i mean i'm so far everything seems to be uh aimed at the base i mean last night was very much base messaging and you know, what would you advise him? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I just say there's got there's got to be a compassionate component to the conservative message, and um, you know, part of uh, Trump's success is that he's kind of post post political in a way that he's not sort of a typical Republican. We well, revels in it. I mean, flays political correctness. Yeah, uh, yeah, and so uh, that is in some ways a huge opportunity to to have a much more expansive message and uh, you know and 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 the, and the convention's a, a time to t take advantage of that and use that opportunity so he's got three days left i hope he does it yeah you know conventions i think are underrated they're really oh pretty God. important that uh, that's where you really lay down your narrative and it's a pure with the exception of the debates i think it's the the, the most opportunistic moment to to grow your support and for people to show who you are and what you are. I mean, it's really four days that you own, you get to control. And unless you, you know, invite Clint Eastwood or plagiarize a speech, yeah. you, know, you should be able to. Well, let's talk about that. You know, she, uh, uh, Melania Trump was featured. This was going to be the big moment of the night. There were a couple of, even before the fact that she, uh, that the speech included plagiarized sentences from Michelle Obama's speech, the thing that struck me was um, that uh, she, um, uh, the, the speech was strangely sort of detached. She said, she used a lot of words that they need to use about different groups and yeah. about compassion and children yeah. and so on. But there was nothing very revealing about Donald Trump, which is usually what you hope the spouse, the family member will do. It contributes to this notion that he is a character beyond, behind which no one knows. Yeah, and I think that was in, in some ways a missed opportunity. I mean, this goes back to the notion of authenticity and vulnerability. She's somebody who could testify beyond the things that we already know about Donald Trump, right? I mean, we could you know, talk about a Sunday afternoon and with the papers and, you know, or small acts of kindness or generosity. And, you know, it was, it was in some, I mean, I thought it was a perfectly acceptable speech, and I think she kind of cleared the bar of expectations, but I think that there were some missed opportunities there as well. All right, what about the plagiarism? Well, the, the one, the feature of the Trump campaign that they have consistently been telling everybody is an asset, which is they are a small, nimble unit, 
that doesn't require layers of bureaucracy and thousands of staffers, uh, they're getting payback for that because uh, when you do a national speech on television, the one absolute obligation and responsibility the campaign has is to vet that speech. And standard speech vetting 101 means you run it through the you know, speech right. software. Well, they said they've been working on it for five weeks. Well, they should have worked on it for six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the thing that struck me last night was when you, you know, we've both been involved in convention planning. You, that's another form of storytelling. And you want to carefully consider how each piece fits together. And each piece needs to, to build or add something yeah, new. Yeah. What we heard last night was a lot of repetition, a lot of Benghazi, a lot, you know, yeah. just over and over again. You know, we, we, she was, I said last night, she was like a, a, a pleasing presence in a white, angry, angry white man sandwich yeah. between <laughs> Rudy Giuliani and General Yeah, she Flynn. kind of told more of the immigrant story and kind of raised some of that, but... But I, I just think the whole construction of that 10 o'clock hour, which is the most oh, important right, yeah, hour yeah, when yeah, everyone, pattern. you get, that's where you get your swing voters. Yeah, when the and, and what you're saying is there should the, have been a narrative architecture to that yes, hour. And instead yes. they were like, like flipping people and there was yeah, you've got, order. Yeah. You lost your like superstar, Joni Ernst, and exactly. she didn't even make prime time. But that's so, one of the interesting things about the Another host. reflection, by the way, I think of lack of infrastructure yeah. and organization yeah, and yeah, planning. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, the, uh, I think we can both appreciate those notions that, you know, we're rolling out, you know, the fir you know, potential first lady, Melania Trump, and those initial stories about how much they'd worked on it. And, oh, and yes, and she's writing it herself. Yes. Well, that, that, that story's changing a lot, isn't it? It's like, yes. that, well, actually, there were other people involved. Yeah. Yeah. How, uh, what, what, is, what is the lasting, if, if at all, impact of, uh, of this, other than s sort of spoiling their first day? Well, that's a big impact, though. I mean, as you said, this is a, you know, a four-day window of opportunity, and they just er erased one of them. You know, they just, they just took one day and threw it out the window in terms of, uh, of controlling their message and it's spiral completely out of control and they're going to spend most of the day trying to put out that fire so I think it's going to you know it's probably a two-day fire now you've I've, heard, I've, I've I, you know I watch you religiously and I've seen you talk about the the Pence pick and you like it you yeah. think that it was a good pick I do I, I, I you know I think you think about what Donald Trump needs to do and he needs to expand the coalition expand his support and of the sort of people he was looking at I just thought the light, you know, you know, people are saying, oh yeah, he should, you know, like Joe Scarborough, uh, you know, was saying, you know, he should pick Newt, or I think he was a big fan of Christie, just saying, you know, that's his, you know, maverick outsider message, and he should double down on that. Well, I think all those maverick double down voters are already for Trump. It's the people who are like, well, I'm kind of interested in Trump, but I'd like to know that there's a an adult in the room with a pause button, uh, like Mike Pence. So I thought yeah. in that sense he was. Yeah, a yeah. I mean. The question is, are you expanding beyond your, what is the natural Republican base? Well, that's Does true. Pence help you? I, you know, I just remember how this process starts and how excited George Bush was, and as I know Trump was, and I'm sure Obama was at the beginning, you're like, God, I get to pick a vice president, you know, and you have this, like, universe of people and great talents and, you know, famous people, and, you know, then you get kind of down to the lick log, as we say in Texas, and suddenly, you know, you're, you're left with very few candidates. Although with Trump, it's different, because the truth is, George Bush did have, probably could have chosen from yeah. anybody, 
Barack Obama could have chosen yeah. from anybody. You're right. Uh, I mean, not a lot of people wanted to be. No, a lot of people took themselves which off Which speaks the list. to the bigger problem. Your your guy isn't here. Bush isn't here. His dad isn't here. You know, the one person who I thought was Jeb Bush the, isn't the, here. the perfect pick for him, and also, uh, I learned this weird postpartisan notion. I had a candidate who would have been the perfect vice presidential pick for both him and Hillary Clinton, which was Condi Rice. Yeah. But I heard that he actually reached out to her a couple of weeks ago, and of course she said no. Yeah. Yeah. What does it say that so many people don't want to be on the ticket with him? I think it kind of speaks for itself. Uh, <laughs> I know, but this is a podcast, so things can't speak for themselves. <laughs> you have to speak for them. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, it's radio. Okay. Uh, I mean, you, the Republican establishment, I mean, you know, the Donald Trump has run... Uh, to some degree, well, to a large degree, against the Republican establishment. So the Republican establishment is not here. And, you know, if, if your notion is you're going to win this election by energizing the base, you better make sure all the base is included, and the Republican establishment is a big part of the base. But wasn't Pence sort of an offering to the Republican establishment? Yeah, so he, well, he, not to the establishment so much but as it was to the conservative base, yeah. I think. Yeah. And the House Republicans. And House Republicans. Uh, so what happens to the Republican Party in your view after this? You're a guy who's been sort of, you've been working this no labels thing. Yeah. Well, so, I've also been saying for a long time that we need to blow up the Republican Party and start over. And that appears to be happening uh -huh. at the very least. And so, I mean, just, I mean, the, the, my concern is that there's no clear, coherent, compelling vision for the Republican Party going forward. And I mean, I, I don't know where the compassionate conservative is or somebody with a compelling message. And Donald Trump has... You know, uh, it's unclear, hopefully we'll see over the course of the week, what that unifying vision, his vision is for the party. But it includes a lot of, 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 of ideas that are pretty, I mean, for example, I mean, one of the things that drew me to the Republican Party in the first place was, you know, pretty radical free yeah, trade. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. Free trader. Well, Donald Trump is not a free trader. Right. So that's going to, you know, that's going to turn off some members of the coalition. There are physical, but, 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 but it's, it's also, also going to bring in others. It, it's it going to bring in. It's going to bring in white. Uh, uh, I mean, blue collar voters from the Rust Belt who uh, have been hurt by trade. So I mean, he's just he's building a different kind of coalition, and everything we thought about this election has been wrong. So, you know, who knows? It's going to be. I mean, we can't base it on historical precedent. But it is good TV, and you are you are right in the thick of it uh, because you created this show called The Circus on Showtime. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, I, ironically, when we first thought of the, the name of the circus, initially we thought, oh, that's a little over the top. That, that, may, that may, uh, And now we're looking at this. Uh, I don't think so, my friend. I don't think so. Uh, the initial idea for this, David, was I started thinking about it about 10 years ago, which, and the, the uh, rationale for the uh, thinking was simply that we've been in a lot of campaigns. We find them to be interesting, fascinating ecosystems of players and characters and drama, 95% of which the public never sees. And I just thought, wouldn't it be fascinating if we could show the humanity behind these campaigns? It's just, there's, there's just great, interesting, dramatic stuff that goes on. And, and so the idea was, and, and by the way, not just to show it, but to show it in real time. That was you know, you can, there are documentaries that are done after elections. And by the way, the yeah. Mitt documentary was in part an inspiration because I saw that and a lot of people saw it and said, well, where was that guy right. in the election? I mean, he was a right. really compelling, interesting guy. And I said, let's do this, roll it up real time so people feel like they're, they can see what it feels like to be in a campaign, but also as it's happening because that creates some drama because we don't know the end of the story. You've gotten some extraordinary access, which I'm sure makes a lot of people jealous. But um, with that access, have you seen moments with 
a Trump with a Hillary uh, that surprised you? They all surprised me in some way. And that's the great thing about doing documentary filmmaking in politics is that we can see a much more contextualized version. If you just watch the news or watch the debates, you kind of get a very one-dimensional sense of these people. But if you can spend any time around them when they're off the stage and see how they interact with families, see how they treat staff, those are the kind of things that really give and you what a did you And what have you dimension. seen of those two? Well, for example, Donald Trump is, uh, uh, you know, he really has a family dynamic that's, that's, that's compelling. And, and you meet his kids. For example, D Donald Trump Jr. is one of the most interesting people I've talked to during the whole show. I met him in Elko, Nevada, in the middle of nowhere. And it was his yeah. first time that he'd gone out Northern as Nevada. a surrogate for mm -hmm. his father. And it, it, I, it, it, was, it was one of the most interesting conversations that I've had with anybody this whole election. He was just authentic, compelling, interesting, you know, candid. And, uh, well, we'll have he, a chance to see him in the next yeah, few days. Yeah, and so. I think uh, I think he'll surprise a lot of people. He's just a, he's an interesting. Well, I know Ivanka. I've I've actually sat next to her at a dinner, and she would I would say the same about her. In fact, I called Donald Trump. I have to confess, after having uh, uh, dinner with her, and I said, "Well, it must be the mother because it can't be you." Well, you know, you look Which, at... Which, by the way, he took very well. Yeah. Well, you know? I mean, you look at people's kids and, you know, you say, well, something's going on right there. You right. Know? I mean, well, you, I think you that's don't what raise great hope. kids like that by accident. That's you know? what, what about Hillary? Uh, you know, she, I, I had the opportunity to kind of intersect with her on some nonprofit work over the last few years. And, you know, I've, I've been really struck in the times that I've seen her, too, on the trail, kind of when the cameras are off, that, that she's... It's, it's, it's just surprising. Classic classic thing huh? yeah you know yeah. where she's 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 got a sense of humor yeah you know she's got a very warm side to her uh and very engaging and yeah. thoughtful and you know uh, engages and listens so right i mean serious th about stuff yeah serious about stuff but serious about stuff in a good way yeah you know yeah, no, I, I mean the thing that, that you that i come away from the interactions that i've had kind of on a staffing level too is that you know it, it, whatever you may think about hillary clinton's politics this is one competent person. Mm -hmm. I mean, she is highly competent and, you know, and a good manager. So, you know, if you, you want somebody in Washington kind of knows where the levers are, this woman knows where the levers well, are. Well, and that's, I think, going to be the contrast in November, yeah. which is do people choose reliability, yeah. competence, stability, or do they want something that do they want to blow the thing up? And uh, so it becomes, you know, temperament uh, versus, you know, the same old, trustworthiness. I mean, that's the construct that's being set up here in a very volatile world. It's, yeah. a, it's a interesting. It will make for great television. Sunday nights? On Sunday showtime. nights at 8 o'clock showtime. And if you don't have it in your cable package, you can get it on an app on your device. Mark McKinnon, thanks for your friendship, for all the good counsel you've hey, given let me, me in Let life. me just say this. I, I've known a lot of interesting characters and people in this business. David Axelrod is one of the finest. And if, you know, if I were running for office, you're the guy that I'd want on board, not, as a cons not just as a consultant or professional, but as a friend. Well, I can say if you run for office, I'll come out of retirement with full confidence that you never will. Well, you can have full confidence that if I run for anything, it'll be the border. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks, man. Take it hard. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.